So when I was growing up, one of the worst things that you could ever be called was a poser. And, and, and really, there were two kinds of posers. One, and, and you guys probably maybe know some people like this, that they, they sort of have a little bit of knowledge, but they don't really know as much as they think they do. Or they might have a level of skill, but not as good as they think they are. And so you kind of watch this person and go, man, someone lied to him. The other kind of poser is someone who's just a straight-up fake. Like, they claim to know something, they claim to be something, and they're not. And I think we could all agree, the second is worse. You don't want to be that kind of poser. So recently, I, I came across Stolen Valor videos on YouTube. You guys know what these are? Have you seen these before? So stolen valor is when somebody acts like they're in the military in order to gain sort of recognition or maybe some sort of financial benefits, and they really were never in the military. And so there's these videos on YouTube, if you want to, you know, spend a few minutes of very entertaining YouTube video watching, where members of the military will catch these people in public, and they'll call them out on it. And so some of this is obvious. Like, there's one video where there's this gal who is claiming to be a colonel, and she's wearing pink tennis shoes in her uniform, and no one is having it. Like, there's no way a colonel's going to wear pink tennis shoes in their uniform. But some of them are a little less obvious. And, and some of these folks are actually able to go undetected among civilians until someone in the military spots something off. And so maybe it's something on their uniform. Like, a patch is in the wrong place. They're, they're, they're sort of... Uh, uniform violations that someone who is legitimately in the military would not make. Or, or maybe someone has a uniform on with a rank that it's like, there's no way you're that rank, you're way too young. Or, or maybe there's something off in their language, and so they'll, they'll go up and start asking the questions, hey, who is your CO? Where did you go to basic training? What unit were you in? What's your MOS? And can't answer a single question. And so after the sort of like the, the military guy gets in there and starts pressing, they just start calling him out and screaming at him, and it's, it's pretty entertaining. But the reason why, the reason why we can see sort of this dichotomy is because the military has a particular way of living. They have a particular language. They have a particular set of behaviors that no matter how good you are at faking, there's a limit if you've actually never been in the military, meaning you can fake only up to a point, but eventually there'll be a tell. There'll be something that exposes you as a fraud and as a fake. And it's the same thing with the Christian life. Like Christianity has a particular set of beliefs. There's a particular language. There's a particular culture. There's a particular life to it that some people can fake pretty well, but eventually there's going to be a tell. There's eventually going to be something that exposes a fraud and that is what the Apostle John is concerned with in our text this morning. So as we learned two weeks ago when we began this, this sermon series in the book of 1 John, he's writing to a church that is reeling from conflicts and confusions. These false teachers had come in and it caused a church split. And so in the midst of that, people are asking questions. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is true? What is actual authentic faith? And what is phony and so John's stepping in and he's saying, hey, here's the marks of authentic Christian faith. There will be people who claim to follow Christ. There will be people who try to teach in Christ's name. But here is how you know if someone truly is in Christ. Here is how you know if you are truly in Christ. And so John's going to cut through the fog of conflict and confusion 
and bring clarity to us. And look, we need the clarity too. There's plenty of conflict. There's plenty of confusion. There's plenty of people out there speaking in Christ's name. And we need clarity. We need confidence in what it means to believe in Christ. And so here's the main point that I want us to take to heart this morning. Because God is light, disciples of Jesus walk in the light. Here's what marks us, followers of Christ. Because God is light, disciples of Jesus walk in the light. We're defined by this. This is our identity. And there's two ways that I want to unpack this based on how John sort of traces this theme of light. This is sort of two ways that we know we're walking in the light. The first is imitating Christ, and the second is confessing sin. So we're going to unpack these two points. But before we do that, I want to just say a couple things to some different groups in the room, because I know in a message like this, it's going to land differently depending on kind of where you are. So, so the first group that I want to address is just say, hey, for those of you that are in Christ, like you know you are in Jesus, like you have a faith. Like my, my goal this morning for you, my hope for you this morning is that you're strengthened in your faith. Whether it be you're, you're encouraged in what God's word says to you, or if you're already in a place of strength, that you would be encouraged to go find a weaker brother or sister and disciple them and love them and bring them along in your journey so they can be confident in their faith. So I want to strengthen and encourage you who are in Christ. Those of you that maybe you're unsure or maybe you're an actual skeptic, what I want to do is, again, I want to hold out Christ to you so to clarify what it means to be a Christian because there's a lot of voices out there trying to say this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so I want to clarify some things, but I also want to challenge you. Like I want to hold the gospel up to you because the gospel demands a response. I want to challenge you with the claims of Christ, and my hope is that you would turn to Jesus in faith. And the third group for those of you that are in this room and you know you're faking it, like, like you're sitting there and you know deep down inside you're wearing the uniform, but you're not really part of God's people. You're not really, you're not really in fellowship with God. Here's what I want to do. I want to challenge you. I want to provoke you. I, I want to push you. I, I don't want to shame you and put, you know, get you on video and so everybody can say, hey, look, a fake uh, that's not what I want to do. I want to provoke you with God's word so that you can actually become authentically a believer in Christ, so that you can confess and truly believe in Christ. And so that's, that's what my hope is this morning, and by the Spirit and by God's grace, uh, we'll get there. And so let's first talk about what it means to walk in the light by imitating Christ, because disciples of Jesus are defined by a particular way of living. We're defined by who our God is, as John makes clear. And this is what he writes. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You see, the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed, the gospel message that the apostles proclaimed, the gospel message that you and I now proclaim starts with God and who God is. It says very, something very clear and distinct about who the one true God is. And it is this, God is light. Now, what does that mean, God is light? Well, light is a regular metaphor in Scripture, and it can point to a number of different things. But here, John is using it to refer to truth and moral purity. To say that God is light means God is true, and God is morally pure. He is holy. And so that God is true means that he knows everything. Like, there is not a single thing that is hidden from God. He has perfect knowledge 
of all of creation. He has perfect knowledge of himself and everything that exists. It's like as Romans 11 sort of teases us, who can counsel God? Who, who can give God advice? Who can teach God anything? Nothing surprises God. There's nothing, no time where God goes, huh, I didn't know that. No, God knows all things. He is complete truth. Everything lies exposed before him. That he is true also means that he speaks what is true. He does what is true. God is not a purveyor of fake news. He declares truth. He establishes truth. He does truth. And this is good news because we always know where we sit with God. God isn't passive aggressive. He's not manipulative. He's not unstable. What you see is what you get. God is who he says he is and how he is acting is true. So God is true. To say that God is light is also to say that he is absolutely pure and holy. I think of the best person you know. Like if I were to say, hey, who's the most moral, who's the, most, who's the highest character that you know? That person, for all their goodness, and I'm not denying that there, is good, there are good character traits, but for all their goodness are a flickering candle compared to the blazing sun of God's holiness and purity. You see, God is far beyond anything we can ever, ever, ever achieve in our morality and in our purity. God is blazing light. He is absolutely good, absolutely true, absolutely holy, absolutely righteous. His character is perfect and complete. And this is good news because God is so good in his goodness we experiencing freedom and healing because God is absolute righteousness because of righteousness of God. There is true flourishing in the justice of God. Corrupt leaders are put down and those who are oppressed and held up are lifted up and set free. In the beauty of God that we see displayed in creation and in the cross, our hearts are filled with glory and joy. The peace of God brings reconciliation It brings two warring parties together, whether that be nations or people or marriages or friends. The joy of God overwhelms us and gives us life. Like all of the attributes of God are powerful and effectual. They transform and they change everything. So God is light. God is true. God is absolutely pure and absolutely holy. And to reinforce this point, John states the character of God in the negative. In him, there is no darkness at all. So in the Greek, this is sort of written as a double negative. And so a more literal reading would say this. In him, no darkness, none whatsoever. John is making making it very, very clear. There's not an infinitesimal speck of darkness in God. He is absolutely light, absolutely holy, absolutely pure. Not a speck of lying or deceit. Not a speck of evil or impurity or unjust or ungracious or unmerciful behavior, not a speck of self-indulgent wickedness. You see, all of that, lying, deceit, lack of justice, being unmerciful, being self-indulgent and selfish, that all is opposed to God. It's rebellion against him. There is no darkness in God whatsoever. There is no shadow in God. He harbors none of these things. Like you and I, look, We can do some good moral things, but we're always a mixed bag. We're always a mixed bag. Whatever light we have, there is also darkness. 
We are inconsistent. God is not. God is not. He is pure light, pure goodness. And so if this is who God is, I think we can all agree that if you claim to follow God, that your life would, would sort of reflect this character in some way or other. I mean, whether you're a Christian or not, I think we can agree, hey, if I say I claim to follow this God who is that good, that holy, that true, that beautiful, that righteous, that just, that that should affect how I live my life. That should transform and change how I live my life. Like if I claim to follow and be a disciple of a particular person, then, then there better be something about my life that reflects that. I mean, those of you that were fans of the Karate Kid in the, in the 80s, like Daniel, he better have learned some karate if he was going to follow Mr. Miyagi. Otherwise, it was just fake, right? And so I think we can acknowledge that if we claim to follow God, there should be something distinct about our lives. There is a significant problem with those who claim to follow Christ and show no characteristics of walking in the light because there is a significant difference between walking in the light and walking in the dark. Have you ever been in a dark room, like so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face? What is it like walking in that room? At one time I I shared a basement apartment with some friends and and my room had no windows. The room I slept in had no windows, and that made it very difficult. If my alarm clock did not go off, I wasn't waking up until like one in the afternoon. But navigating that room in the darkness was a bit dangerous. It was also really small, and I had like two dressers and a bed, and so if I did not have the light on, I was tripping and stubbing my toe. Very different walking in the dark than walking in the light. And John points this out. There is something different If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There is a difference between walking in the dark and walking in the light. Let's say I am in my room, in the dark, trying to walk around, and my roommates hear me stubbing my toe, knocking stuff over, cussing because I stubbed my toe. It's a hot mess in there because I'm trying to walk in the dark. What if they knock on the door and go, hey, Chris, you okay? Can you see? And I'm like, yeah, sure I can. One, I'm making a mess in my room. I'm busting up my feet. But two, I'm a liar. And so if we say we are following Christ and yet we're walking in the darkness, not only are we walking in darkness and making a mess of things, congratulations, we're also liars. And so there should be something markedly different about us, something different about the way we live our lives if we claim to walk in the light. If my light is on in the room, it's going to change the way that I navigate the room. Look, Scripture comes down hard on those who are going to pay lip service, those who are going to claim to follow Christ but not walk in the light. Look, hypocrisy is a problem. Being a poser is a problem. And and whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to feel that, and you're going to be frustrated by that. And guess who agrees with you? God. He he dislikes that as well. If we say we walk in the light, if we say we have fellowship with him, if we say that we know him, and yet we walk in darkness, we don't keep his commandments, our life does not look any different, then we're not practicing truth, and we're lying. Conversely, those who are truly in fellowship and relationship with God, 
Like we're going to reflect his nature. As we saw a couple weeks ago, because to know Christ is to be brought into a relationship with the triune God, right? We're part of the, the fellowship of the Trinity. We've been brought into that friendship, that relationship, that love, and it transforms us. And so if we're walking with God, if we're in that fellowship, we're going to be transformed. This is what John writes. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. By this we, have know, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Look, Christians, if, if you are a follower of Christ, your morality is not just some simple baseline Midwestern I'm nice work ethic. Like you walk in the light, the light that shines on you and in you and through you is the blazing light of God. And so our morality, our, our righteousness, the way we're called to walk in this world is vastly different. Like there is something different about us. There is something distinct. Like the colors that our lives display are not a pale hue. They're bold and they're bright because of the light of God shining in us and through us. And so if you follow Christ, if you walk in the light, God's light transforms you and he calls you into a deep and a rich and a bold life of righteousness and holiness and goodness and truth and beauty and love. So you walk in a particular way not because you're trying to prove anything, not because you're trying to get right with God or earn favor with God. No, it's because God already has you. It's because you belong to God, because you've been marked. You live out of an identity. You live as one who's been marked by light. And so church, listen, there should be something distinct about us. And it shouldn't be our politics. It shouldn't be our education. It shouldn't be our bank accounts. It shouldn't be the way that we dress. Like what should be most noticeable about us is this glorious light coming out of us that reflects goodness and truth and beauty. That that it shows righteousness and we care about justice and peace and joy and life. And you think about just like, think about our cultural and political moment right now. And I'm trying not to go on too far of a rant, so forgive me. But look, Christians, we should be able to boldly speak into the cultural and political issues of our day with a clarity and a light that comes not from being adhering to whether Republican or Democrat, but to to, to Scripture. Like, Like, should we be able to speak into things like the Me Too movement? We should care about the way that men can use power to abuse women, but we can also care about truth. And that comes from the word of God. Like we can care about racial reconciliation, not because the culture is jumping on that bandwagon, but because in Christ we're all united as one. And so we have a more powerful word to speak. We have a light, a brighter light to shine. And so Christians, we should be shining that light that joy, that life, that righteousness, that justice, that peace into those dark places of our our culture because this is who our God is. This is who our God is. This is what he does in our world and he calls us to do the same. So may our righteousness, may our justice, may our peace, may our goodness, may our sacrifice, may our love shine bright.
what light defines you? Now, this is a good question to ask yourself. What light defines you? Is it the flickering candle of your own morality? Is it the flickering candle of political philosophy? Is it the flickering candle of man-made ethics and philosophy? Or is the bright, shining sun of the character of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God? See, here's something that is a little bit ironic about our hearts. We're drawn to light. Because we've been made in the image of God, we're drawn to light. Unless you are a hardened psychopath, (laughs) things like goodness and truth and beauty and righteousness and justice and peace those things are attractive. We, we, we want those things. We're drawn to those things. And if you sort of peel back what's going on in kind of our cultural and political moment, are they not grabs at those things? Or are we not trying to grab at the light? The problem is, is we're content with our little candles. The problem is, is that we, we are not seeing the true light. Rather, we're looking at our own little candles thinking that's the answer. And so if your heart is drawn to righteousness, if your heart is drawn to goodness and peace and righteousness and flourishing, guess what? That is the light of God drawing you. That is the light of God wooing you. That is the light of God shining. Just like you can't ignore a light in a dark room. That is the light of God shining to get you to look and to see, hey, this is where life is found. Because of our sin, though, As Jesus says in the Gospel of John chapter 3, we we love darkness. We love darkness rather than light, and so we will reject light. We'll be drawn to it, we'll look at it, and we'll sometimes even walk towards it, but in ourselves we often reject it because, you know, I kind of like the darkness here. I I don't want to actually be exposed because as we're going to see here in a second, walking in light means throwing open the doors of our hearts. But let me ask you, what light is defining you? Is that light glorious? Is that light actually transformative? Does that light actually bring righteousness and justice and flourishing? Does that light actually bring life and forgiveness and cleansing and transformation? We walk in the light because our God is light. We are defined by light because that is who our God is. And so if you claim to follow Jesus Christ, walk in the light be defined and transformed by who God is. Let his character and his nature transform you as one who walks in the light. Second, we walk in the light by confessing sin. We, we, as disciples of Jesus, look like we care about righteousness, we care about goodness, we care about holiness and purity. Like we should care about those things more than anybody else. We, we want, we hunger for them, we long for them, we wanna practice those things, we wanna see those things happen in our society. But guess what? We're also the most honest about how broken things are. Like, like don't confuse a, a high view of holiness, a high view of righteousness with minimizing sin. Like, we're not denying sin. We're not denying we're broken. We're not saying we're better. Like, we should be the most honest about how sinful we are and how broken we are. Walking in the light means we no longer hide sin, but confess it. To say we have no sin is problematic for two reasons. One, self-deception, and two, we make God out to be a liar. And self-deception, man, that can get funky in many ways. 
Self-deception is a problem on a number of levels. Because you know that person. You've met that person who has a higher view of themselves. Like, like you look at them and you go, man, they, they think they're better than they are, as we said. They, 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 they miss, they don't have self-awareness. And when you see self-deception at play in other people, you're kind of like, wow, at best that's annoying, at worst it's destructive. And so if we say we have no sin, that's self-deception. We're lying to ourselves. To say we have no sin is to reject what God has said about us. Now, biblical scholars aren't entirely sure what the false teachers were saying about sin. Like, like were they saying that people were perfect or that um, Jesus didn't need to die for our sins? They're not entirely sure, but what they, they think the false teachers were saying is once you become part of Christ, once you've sort of been given this special revelation and anointing, you no longer sin. Like, you become perfect. Sadly, there are some in the Christian faith that teach that. But John is punching really hard at that and saying, hey, look, if you say you have no sin... At best, you're self-deceiving. Worst, you're saying God is a liar. What does your self-deception look like? Because I bet most of you aren't going to just go outright, hey, look, I don't sin. I don't sin. And then, you know, kind of point to your spouse and go, really, is that true? We're not, we're, 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 I think most of us are at least self-aware enough to know that we do sin. However, there are ways that we can functionally say, I have no sin. There are ways that we can functionally deny that we have sin. Here are a few. We can try to redefine what sin is. Like we can look at what God has called sin, what God has called evil, and we can say, you know what? I want to practice that. I'm okay with that. So I'm going to try to redefine it. Because if I can redefine it, then I no longer have to say that I'm a sinner. And so we try to redefine definitions. The second, when we minimize and make excuses. Like every time you minimize and you make excuses, here's what you're saying. I have no sin. Well, if you just understood me better, you would know I have no sin. And so we can do this either whether it's being angry at people when they call us out on things, or we can just kind of play that like, oh, I know. I, I know. I'm, I'm imperfect. I'm, I'm flawed. I know. I mess up. Minimizing that, look, look, it may sound pious, it may sound humble, but it's deflection. It's a way so people will get off your back. It's not actually confessing. It's not actually dealing with it. And when we do that, we're saying, I have no sin. I have no need to confess. I have no need to deal with my sin. We can also cover up our sin with attempts at good deeds. If I do enough, if I do enough good things, if people think that I'm a good person, they won't pay attention to my sin. And what we're trying to say is, hey, look, pay attention to my good deeds. Ignore my sin. I don't want you to say, see that I have sin. I have no sin. You see how this begins to spiral into this defense mechanism. When we self-righteously judge others. When we want to put the attention on other people's sin, when we want to, to, to say, hey, look, you're worse than I am, we're effectively saying, I have no sin. Or our indifference. We might be indifferent to things like righteousness and holiness and goodness and truth. They have no place in our affections, no place in our heart. We, we don't care about those things. 
And when we don't care about those things, essentially what we're saying is, I'm fine as I am. Things are as good as they are. I have no sin. There is no problem. And so indifference is a way to say that I don't have sin. And look, what that often translates into is little interest in self-awareness. Like if you're indifferent about your sin, what you're saying is, I don't want to spend any time reflecting. I don't want anybody to, to sort of reveal to me who I really am. How do you practice self-deception? Well, what are your defense mechanisms? And look, if you're a Christian or not, we all do this. We all do this. We all have our ways. What's yours? To be honest, I love minimizing. I can minimize. I can, man, I can talk circles and get you to understand why what I do is not a sin. Man, what does that do? Where does that leave me? Where does that leave the people I'm in community with? Not in a good place. And so when we self-deceive, we're not hurting just ourselves. We're damaging those around us. But here's the good news of the gospel. Because look, we don't confess sin. We, we don't work at self-awareness we, we don't try to kill self-deception so we can be a bunch of navel-gazing emo kids. We do this so we can experience freedom. We do this so we can be experiencing cleansing. We can be set free. We can walk in the light in a way that we live in the life that God intends for us. John calls people on those who will not confess sin, but then he holds out this incredible promise for those who will. This is what he writes. If we walk in the light as he is in the light... That means if we open our lives, if we let the light of God shine into our hearts and expose what is in our hearts, look, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Walk in the light. Bring your sin into the light so you may be forgiven and cleansed. Does that sin, let me, let's just be honest here for a second. Does that sin ever just weigh heavy on you? Are you ever tired of your sin? I mean, again, whether you're a Christian or not, do, do, you ever, do you ever feel trapped by your failures, trapped by your weaknesses, trapped by your pride, trapped at how you make a mess of things? Good. <laughs> because you should. And in that moment when you feel trapped, like, don't try to redefine sin. Don't try to minimize and be indifferent and aloof. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to outdo it with good works. Confess it. Bring it into the light. Let the blood of Jesus set you free. Let the blood of Jesus forgive you. That's what the gospel holds out for us. That is the promise and the power of the gospel. And what guarantees your forgiveness? What guarantees your cleansing? I mean, look, this is an important question, and this is an important point that we grab hold of as we understand the power of the gospel. Because if we answer this question wrong, if we go sideways in how we understand our forgiveness, then we're going to fall right back into performing. Here's what John writes. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Like we very much want to walk in righteousness as a Christian. And so John is writing, say, hey, I don't want you to sin. But if you do, because you're going to, we have an advocate. We have an advocate. Now, an advocate is like a lawyer. So there's a little bit of a courtroom imagery here. It's like a lawyer or a character witness standing before the judge, arguing that this person is innocent. What is the basis by which Jesus is arguing on our behalf? Is Jesus minimizing our sin? Oh, it's not really that big of a deal. They really aren't that bad of a person. Just give them another chance. Look at all the good things that they're doing. Is that the basis of Jesus' advocacy for us? No. Jesus is not standing before the Father making light of our sin. He's not pointing to our good deeds and how they outweigh our bad deeds. Here's what he's also not doing. He's going, look, they really feel sorry. They, they, They really intend not to do it again. So forgive them based on their good intentions and how sorry they feel. Look, we should be sincere. No, I'm not saying that you should fake it. That the gospel is not a magic mantra that you can just quote and then all of a sudden you're forgiven. Like there needs to be true faith, true sincerity. But our forgiveness is not based in the strength of our sincerity because it is always imperfect. No matter how many promises we make, we will fall back into sin. And so our hope for forgiveness is not on the strength of our sincerity, but on Christ. The righteous, that's an important word right there, the righteous. Two reasons, one, if you have a lawyer, if you have a character witness, you want that judge to look at that person and go, hey, that person's trustworthy. That person is a person of good moral character talking to me. And so Jesus, the righteous, is the best advocate, the best lawyer we could ever have, the best character witness we could ever have because he's perfect. But here's what it more deeply means, why it's important that Christ is the righteous. Because our advocacy, our standing before the Father is not based on our performance, not based on our sincerity, not based on our good works, but Christ's. When God looks at us, if you are in Jesus Christ, remember what Valentine told us last week? When when God looks at you, if you are in Jesus Christ, he sees you the same way he sees Christ. And if that seems too extravagant with you, take it up with Jesus. Our standing before God, the advocacy of Christ, he points to himself He doesn't minimize sin because our sin is a big deal. Our sin deserves punishment. Our sin deserves to be dealt with. And so we stand in the righteousness of Christ. We stand in front of God because of what Jesus has done. He credits his righteousness to us. And what about our sin? Well, Jesus is our propitiation. That's a fancy word to mean wrath bearer. Jesus is the one who bared our wrath. Have you ever experienced someone being your wrath bearer? I remember one time getting in trouble with the, one of the neighbors. I was a punk and I did something to one of my neighbor kids and his dad came over to our house screaming. And I hid in the closet. And my mom took the brunt of his wrath, the wrath I deserved. She stood there as my wrath bearer. That is who Jesus is to you. If you are in Christ, he has taken the wrath of God for your sin on himself so that you can know the love of God. Our sin has been dealt with. God is just. He doesn't just wipe it away. He doesn't just turn his back and say, that's no big deal. Rather, he deals with it. 
And so Jesus, we stand in Jesus' righteousness and we stand forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. That is the basis for our forgiveness. And how can we have confidence? Because God is faithful. God is just. He keeps his promises. And so if you confess your sin, if you call out to Christ, you can be forgiven and you can be cleansed. Here's something else that I also want to make clear. One more layer to this. Don't make the mistake of thinking Jesus has to protect us from an angry God. It's not angry God the Father in nice Jesus. Who appointed Jesus as our advocate? Who sent Jesus to be our advocate? The Father. The Father. Jesus is the greatest court-appointed attorney in history. God loved us so much that he gave us the best. And he joyfully looks at Jesus and joyfully receives Jesus' advocacy and says, yes, I want to bless them. I want to see them as righteous. John doesn't write this because God needs to be reminded. John writes this because we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of who stands before God when we sin, when we want to retreat back, when we want to try to cover, when we want to try to minimize, when we want to try to redefine, when we want to try to do things with our good works, we need to be reminded that Jesus stands before the Father as our advocate. We stand in his righteousness. We're forgiven because of his sacrifice. And the beautiful thing is, is that in the resurrection of Christ, we see God's full acceptance of Christ's payment. Because Jesus is raised, the check cleared, our bank account is full, That's what we rest in. Walking in the light, imitating Christ, confessing sin. These are the marks. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what authenticates Christian faith. And where things go sideways is when we try to minimize one or the other. We hold both of these two things up. And so let me just say this in conclusion. And if you stand in genuine, authentic faith... If you are a believer, keep walking in the light. Keep pursuing righteousness. Keep pursuing love. Keep pursuing holiness. Keep pursuing justice and peace in this world. Keep walking as Christ walked. Keep loving other people. And also keep confessing. Keep confessing the sin. Keep walking in repentance because in that, God is transforming you. God is cleansing you. God is conforming you more and more into the image of Christ. And what he starts, he will complete. For those of you in here that are unsure or a skeptic, that God's light is shining bright and he's drawing you and he's wooing you. Come into the light. Come into the light. Confess your sin. Let God heal you, forgive you, cleanse you of all your sin. And then follow Christ. Those of you that are faking it, again, God's light is shining bright. And there's two ways that you can be exposed. One is to come into the light and and say, I've been faking it, and confess that sin, and experience grace, experience mercy, experience forgiveness, or be exposed on the last day when Jesus will say, I never knew you. Those are strong words, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can walk in the light and experience relationship and fellowship with God now. And so wherever you are, come into the light experience fellowship with God, experience fellowship with the church, and experience the life that God has for you. Amen.